0: Hello everyone, I'm back today with a special edition of Movie Madness with Khalil Jamal because we have an interview with a very special guest to talk about her movies which are premiering on Sunday, October 15th at the Aga Khan Museum Nanji Foundation Auditorium in Toronto. It starts at 11am and if you want to watch these two amazing short films and meet the person I'm going to talk to herself then the link to get tickets is going to be in the description of this episode. So today we are joined by Kiana Rauji. She is an award-winning filmmaker from Calgary, Alberta, and daughter of South Asian immigrants from Kenya. She recently graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College studying film and history and literature. Through film, she strives to amplify social issues and drive cultural change from independent theaters to Oscar-qualifying film festivals. Her films have screened across Canada, the U.S., and East Africa. Her TEDx talks on Islam and cosmopolitan ethic have reached over 150,000 people worldwide. In 2021, her short documentary, Long Distance, about migrant workers at an Albertan meat plant won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Alberta Short Film at the Calgary International Film Festival. And this Sunday, her two films, her two new films, Inside Job and Mama Manyata, will have, be having their Canadian premiere. Now, with all that being said, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. So I'm so glad you're able to drop by so we can talk about these really amazing films.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Now, I have to start with something which may seem obvious, but I think it's something everyone's kind of thinking is, what made you actually decide to make films generally?
1: Yes, that is a great question. That is the question I'm always answering for my parents. It feels like a couple of times each year. Um, I went to Harvard thinking I was going to be a lawyer um, and, you know, study political science. I mean, I was always interested in social justice and I had sort of pursued that in high school through writing and public speaking. And um, I guess I was just kind of looking for a a new way to keep pursuing those like social issues and make an impact, make change. Um, And I took a film class out of curiosity my first year. Um, it was actually at MIT. It was a film class called Social Justice in the Documentary Film um, with this professor, Vivek Bald, who was wonderful. And it was actually the first time I ever had a Brown, like a South Asian professor in my entire academic career, um, which certainly helped. I mean, it makes it's such a big difference to learn from and see the people who look like you doing the stuff that um, makes you realize what you can do. Um, so that class really was kind of what did it for me. I mean, I I made my first short film in that class. It was terrible, but it was an amazing process and I loved it. Um, and since then, I kind of never looked back. I was really drawn to film as a new medium to evoke empathy and, you know, amplify marginalized voices, raise awareness about issues I cared about, engage with them and all their complexities. Um, and after that, I decided to, to study film as my major. I did a double major in film and history and literature. So um, my whole approach was sort of taking a very historical and research-based um, approach to making art. I wanted to learn more about the histories in all their nuance that would inform the stories I told and keep telling through film. But yeah, that's sort of, it was it was really just that one class that kind of made everything change, made everything click. And yeah, I haven't looked back since. See,
0: every great artist always has that one moment, that one pivotal defining moment, and it (laughs) looks like that film class was yours. And, you know, as a a poli-sci student myself, I can, um, (laughs) who's on, you know, wants to be a lawyer, I can tell you that I understand that first desire as well.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's a great desire and you can make a lot of change. It just wasn't for me.
0: (laughs) No, that's fair. And I mean, you know, I do things like this to, uh, you know, this podcast to try to, do my own because I'm not nearly as talented as any of the people I talk to such (laughs) as yourself but at least you know I do it to try to the same same goal different different way of getting there so growing up were there any movies that you kind of look back on as inspiration I know we talked about the film class but was there anything kind of growing up where you're like that is either the style I like uh, to replicate or you know the kind of subject matter I like to replicate what was it for you
1: Um, Well, I mean, so another sort of pivotal moment for me was actually when I, it was my like grade 12 in high school, um, sort of towards the end, I was actually taking a history class um, where there was, you know, one class where the professor showed or the teacher showed a documentary um, and it happened to be 13th by Ava DuVernay. Um oh. and that documentary, so I I mean I hadn't really watched many interesting documentaries before that. I, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of good content, I would say, growing up. Um, and this was really the first time I saw a documentary that was interesting and imperative and could, you know, have such a creative approach to telling a really important story um and making a lot of impact. And also engaging with history. That was something I was always really interested in. I loved history, I loved English, um, and this way of sort of putting things together, um, and telling a history in a new and creative way that, um, you know, amplifies something that, that people don't know about that's really important was just a huge concept for me. I mean, it just opened my mind to what you could do with documentaries and with films in general. Um, you know, Ava DuVernay was sort of like the, the first filmmaker who made me even contemplate the idea of being a filmmaker. Um, and you know that class was sort of what made me finally make the decision but it was it was 13th really by Ava DuVernay that made me um start to even become drawn to film um it made me start watching more stuff that was good <laughs> and and stuff that you know felt like it mattered i mean i I'm, i was always a fan of of stuff that was very heavily social justice oriented so basically anything by ava so you know whether it's 13th selma when they see us all of that stuff i think is incredible and um some of the most important stuff that's ever been made but i'm also you know over the years gotten a lot of, a lot more interested in in um you know films that kind of hide the the medicine in the food and sort of you know tell important stories that need to be heard but sort of do it under the the guise of genre <laughs> and um you know whether it's something by jordan peele or it's everything everywhere all at once um I'm. I'm just learning a lot about all these new ways to kind of do the things that had drawn me to film in the first place, which was having social impact. Um, and that's where I think fiction can be really cool as a method. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but... The- I mean, you yeah. answered two of my questions,
0: so I mean, <laughs> you're doing a great job so far. No, you answered my question about which director you take inspiration from. Uh, and I, th- I, I think it's very cool because documentaries actually I think are kind of an underrated form of storytelling because I think people don't realize how interesting and how how interesting a well-done documentary can be and how impactful it can be Uh, I think a lot of people like movies again like you're saying kind of hide the medicine in the food and I but I do think that's a very interesting perspective now to kind of talk about one of your your the first film that we're going to talk about One of your two new films, Inside Job, and I found this very fascinating. And I wanted to kind of know where this idea came from. Like, when did you kind of, like, how did that that this all kind of come about?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Inside Job. It's so it's you know it's about the sort of storyline is it's an Indian housewife in nineteen seventies Nairobi who loses a piece of jewelry and suspects one of her African domestic servants of stealing it. Um, It's sort of this whodunit plot that. Unravels um, to expose a lot of deeper resentments and fears that are very racialized. Um, And it came from, I mean, it started with my family history. So I knew I wanted to, you know, for a while I've known I wanted to make something about the South Asian diaspora in East Africa. Um, And I, towards the end of college, I started gearing a lot of my research um, on diasporas in the Indian Ocean and cross cultural encounters over time and ended up specifying um, and focusing specifically on. The post-colonial period in East Africa between and relation interracial relations between black and brown East Africans. So I mean, it's you know there's there's so much history there that people don't really know much about most of the time. But you know the Indians were sort of brought over in the early 1800s as indentured laborers, um, and also as merchants. And over time, the British sort of implemented a very strict triarchical system, triarchical system of you know white, brown, black, and there was very little interaction across races. Um, and that that kind of hierarchy lasted long after the British left, um, and created a lot of resentment on many sides. Um, but I was most interested in how how different it was for me to grow up in Canada versus my parents growing up in East Africa, and their you know understanding of and relationship to race, and especially to to Black Africans. You know, growing up as a minority in the West, there's definitely I think a, there's certainly racism still between minorities, but I also think that there's more of a solidarity that's that's formed, and I was really interested in why that wasn't the case for my parents. Um, so I, you know, did some research, started doing a lot of historical research through my studies at Harvard and found that the most common sort of realm of inter- interracial interaction was in the household because almost all brown families had black domestic workers. Um, so I was really interested in how, certain cultural boundaries and stereotypes and perceptions of each other were both enforced, but also um, transcended and broken down inside the intimate quarters of the household. Um, So I started to do a lot of oral history research because this was not something that was explored much in academic writing or really anywhere that I could find in arts even, um, the specific Indian and African um, domestic labor relationship. And it was from those oral histories that I did. I interviewed family members, family friends, um, also had some research assistants in Kenya interviewing Black workers who'd worked for Brown employers. Um, And it was from those interviews that the entire story really emerged. And theft was something that was so fixated upon by my interviewees that it became the plot of the film. It sort of um, naturally emerged that way. and yeah, I mean there's I'm rambling, but there's so much more to say. But <laughs> that's sort of that's the the backstory. So that's interesting because you kind
0: of talk about this method of like, you know, almost academic-like research, right? Where you talk about doing some like inner like doing interviews, right? And almost very, you know, history, political science kind of oriented type research. But then the result instead of, you know, an academic paper is a film, right? I think that's a very, that's such an interesting thing where you like, you take all this research, which again, you know, I'm sure you know this, most people would turn that into like a paper and would, you Mm -hmm. know, be very, very proud of that paper. But what you did was you're like, no, no, I'm going to take it and put it into something that people are actually going to like pay attention (laughs) to and going to watch. And I think that's,
1: that's so much, so much cooler. Yeah, I mean, it's so, yeah, I'm glad you think so. I I agree. I think it's, there's so much academic work that is so interesting, but is just not um, sort of packaged in an accessible way to the vast majority of, you know, just people. I mean, there's it's so easy to get stuck in very academic circles. And I was really interested in taking a lot of, you know, deeply informed research and and putting it into a form that is able to penetrate, you know, broader culture more. And that's what I like about film in general. That's what I hope to do with it for the rest of my life. So
0: inside job, I'm sure there were challenges when you're talking about doing research, you know, different countries, um, across the ocean, right? Like what were some roadblocks or challenges you faced when making this movie?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean so many, but, (laughs) um, I had such an incredible team and, um, that I was able to build that, you know, helped with all these challenges. But I mean, I was making a period film for the first time and on a very low budget and I, you know, when I decided I wanted to make this film, I knew no one in the film industry in Kenya, but I knew I wanted to make it in Kenya. I had to make it in Kenya. And it really, you know, my whole team kind of it was the kind of thing where, you know, someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone. And that's how my cast and crew was formed. Um, it started with a family friend, basically, who knew a producer, who knew another producer, who then helped me connect with my whole um crew and my casting director who found you know all the African uh, actors but there's two Indian actresses in it but um, they were actually I found them through like the Ismaili community in Kenya they had never acted before either of them so that was really fun to work with non-actors but aside from just finding cast and crew, I mean, there was it was such a big challenge to get this history right because it was something, you know, I was recreating an entire world that I hadn't lived through that I'd researched, certainly. But just, you know, I wanted to make it feel real and not, you know, lift it off the page of the textbooks and, and you know, the archives and the research I was doing. Um, and a big part of that was really the, like the interviews were so important because I think they, you know, the kinds of things I talked to people about and got insight on informed everything from the subtleties of the dialogue to, you know, the kinds of clothes people would wear and the dishware they would use. Um, I was you know, also consulted this um, this curator at a museum in, in the National Museum of Nairobi who was working on this East African Asian exhibit that's coming out, I think in a few months. Um, So they had a lot of really awesome material for me to look at as a sort of source material for inspiration and and were able to sort of um, consult me on my set design and, you know, what would be where and how things would be used. And the woman whose house I used, who was generous enough to let me use her house, was actually like built in 70s. And she had all this old. Um, you know, she had these old stoves called a jiko that people would have used in the 70s to to cook. And she had this sort of treasure chest of of props and materials, as did a lot of family members I had in the area. Um, so it was just sort of like sourcing different things from a lot of different places. Um, it, and that, that kind of helped me overcome all these challenges that, you know, making a period film in a really tight budget in a country I'm not from <laughs> would, would pose. Um, but in the end it was i mean i think it was all the more enriching of an experience because there were you know so many steps involved and um you know overcoming each one of them was its own little victory and i you know was able to meet some incredible people in the process who really made the film what it was
0: and when so when you're kind of go working with these non actors how much of how much freedom did you give them because i'm assuming at least that they also weren't from the time period which you were talking about, but at this they, how did you balance all of that? Because I'm sure you, I, I'm assuming you had you you and you said you did consult with people kind of throughout the process. So how much freedom did you give them to kind of you know create their own kind of versions of the characters?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I made sure that I chose actors who, you know, between the non-actors and the actors who had experience that, um, you know, spoke the languages of the film. So the film moves fluidly between English, Gujarati, and Swahili. um, And I wanted all my actors to sort of, you know, speak those languages. Um, All of them spoke at least two of those languages so that they could just move sort of authentically and fluidly through them. Because, you know, the script was written in English, but um, it was the actors who sort of chose when to switch into Swahili or when to switch into English. And there was this one woman who, you know, she's older and she lived through the period that I'm, you know, I made the film about. And she was sort of this like cultural consultant where we, you know, had her talk to the whole cast and we talked through certain types of sayings and the ways things will be said differently in, in Gujarati and in Swahili. Um, and, you know, it's it's funny because we had my, my Indian actress, the way that she speaks Swahili is very different than the way that, you know, her mom's generation would have spoken Swahili. It's much more, you know, she had to kind of dumb it down a bit um, and make it more of a broken sort of what they call kitchen Swahili. Um right. But there are all these conversations we had ahead of time that sort of, I think, gave my actors the sort of broad framework and sort of scaffolding to work off of. But then they really just infused it in what felt natural for them, um, having some of the, you know, the historical information. But I, I I do think I gave them a lot of freedom. And that was one of the most fun parts was having um, everyone kind of improvise a bit and, and infuse their own touch into the dialogue, into the roles, um, especially the 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 kid. Um, there's a nine-year-old actress in it who plays the daughter. And um, I learned very quickly that I couldn't really control her. And um, she kind of had her own mind and which was great. I mean, it was, it was almost like a documentary type of process working with her because I would just kind of tell her, give her a task rather than lines or a specific, um, you know, specific action, I would sort of say, go bug this character. And then she would just do it. And you know, she would just be a kid. And that was what I needed her to do. So she was wonderful. They the whole cast was really wonderful to work with and 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 was able to bring themselves to the roles in a lot of really wonderful ways.
0: Now, what about Mama of Menyata? Um, where did that idea start and and kind of what was the process to start in that, which was a documentary, not a like a written story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mama of Munyata started, um, it was a few years before I made the film, my older sister Zara, she had, um, been in this, did, done this like global health summer program through Harvard that sent students to work with local NGOs and CBOs in Western Kenya. And so she had actually been connected through to this woman, Mama Felgon, who um, is the subject of my film, Mama of Munyata. Um, and she kind of just she spent several months with her and and her team working on fighting HIV and gender-based violence in the slum called Manyara. And my sister kind of just fell in love with with Mama Felgone and the whole community. And she told me, you know, there's a story here that you need to tell. Um, so I, I went back. I, I grew up going to Kenya a lot, um almost every summer. So the next summer that I could, I visited Manyara and I met Mama Felgone and I immediately agreed. Um, she was just one of those people who had such a incredible warmth to her spirit and radiance and resilience that I just you know I I couldn't not make a film about it if that makes sense um and about her so and it was just her work was the work that her organization was doing was more than you know most NGOs in the area they were having so much impact it was a very community-based approach to tackling really big problems um and I you know saw an opportunity to to tell a story that would raise awareness about what they do, about the problem that they tackle, and hopefully have some impact and raise some funds for her organization to keep doing what they do. But that's how it started. Um Yeah.
0: So when you so when I whenever I talk to anyone who, who makes documentaries, right, the thing they always talk about is about boundaries, right? Because when you're doing when you're making a documentary, you kind of get very personal with people, right? And, and you can end up, you know, almost being You know, getting kind of too close to the situation as they talk about not only as a from a filmmaker perspective, kind of creating boundaries, but also from a privacy perspective for the subject, creating boundaries when you're doing it. When you were kind of making this documentary, how did you kind of create boundaries not only for yourself to kind of make sure that you were still telling the story, telling the full story, but also boundaries to make sure that there was no privacy issues or anything sure.
1: yeah totally I mean that's a that's definitely a concern that comes up whenever you're immersing yourself in someone else's life with your camera it's it's a huge concern um and thing to balance but I think I mean I will say so for for Mama Veneta I was just a one-woman crew like I went and I I shot the film myself um and I had spent some time with this community beforehand you know without filming anything um they kind of got to know me and trust me and I also you know kind of you know Mama go and kind of she took everyone under her wing and I almost felt like I was part of that family that she created in a really beautiful way. Um and so there was this, a level of intimacy and friendship that I think actually lent itself really well to making a documentary. I there were moments, you know, whenever I make documentaries, I'm always very upfront with my subjects about, you know, if there's anything they don't want me to film, I don't have to. Um, and I sort of usually just kind of see what the vibe is and what feels natural. Um And with Mama Falgon, she was just such an open person. And I think it also helps that, you know, she, we have this, um, um, you know, existing relationship before I picked up a camera and just started shooting that allowed her to be really vulnerable in front of the camera. And there are some really, you know, private moments in the film that that you get to see. And they're really beautiful because I think it just paints such a full picture of who she is and who she was. Um, And, Yeah, I mean, I I think just what's most important, I think, when talking about this idea of boundaries is establishing trust with your subject um, on both ends. I think it's something that has to be mutual and reciprocal. Um, But just, you know, i made sure to be very clear at any times if there was something that, you know, she didn't want on camera, we could always turn the camera off. And I've had that happen in other films, but with her, it it never actually really happened. Um, She was also someone who is just very eager to tell her story and she kind of you know she wanted everything to be recorded because she knew the impact it would have um and you know with 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 anyone I filmed who wasn't her I also got their permission beforehand um but I I think it becomes less of a problem when you're you you know actually let yourself cross the boundary at a certain point and not just be a filmmaker but also kind of you know, be a human, be a friend, um, and create real relationships. And I think out of those relationships, the boundary part kind of solves itself because you you establish that mutual trust um, in each other that allows you to navigate any kinds of issues that may come up around boundaries really flexibly and, and sort of naturally, so,
0: yeah. So the other thing I wanna kind of address, cause I think there's gonna be a lot of people listening to your answer who's, who are gonna say this. And so I just wanna, um, so when people talk about documentaries, Generally, they I think the thing I learned very quickly is documentaries aren't actually, you know, like some people think aren't actually like, you know, supposed to be free of narrative or an objective view on something. Right. And so kind of I'm sure you've I'm sure people have said, oh, well, if you you know, you're saying that you were friends and, you know, you have this relationship, then it can't really be a documentary because there is a narrative or there is kind of there is no objectivity So what do you kind of say to those people who would say something like that?
1: Yeah, sure. I, I think that art is never objective, um, I think that whenever you hold your camera to the world, you're choosing what to frame. And in that choice, there is some kind of construction of a reality um, that is inherently influenced by whoever you are and whatever your perspective is. Um, you know, the, the personal is political type of thing. I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in the fact, in, or in, in the idea that art, all art is political in some way. So I, I, I never sort of um, operate under the the assumption that, you know, of, of objectivity or even the aspiration of objectivity. Um, I think that narratives are, can be realized. There are, certainly are documentaries that are very like verite, you know, fly on the wall type of things. And that's a different, I guess, genre in itself, which has value. And I'm sure people, and I still don't think it's um, objective, but I do think that there is there is documentary work that has, you know, is is very loose with the concept of narrative. But I'm really interested in character-based documentaries that do have some kind of narrative arc or story arc, because I think that's what sort of can help make, um, you know, really big ideas feel, again, accessible and um, make them hit and have impact in a way that they might not otherwise have. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I just kind of reject the idea that that you need to be subject or sorry, objective in making any kind of film Um, and I, you know, I had a story involved. I knew what I wanted to portray and it was, I hope, and I, and I think, um, you know, informed by what I think the community and what Falgon also wanted to portray, which was a story of African empowerment and resilience in the face of hardship, you know, not another story of the African suffering poor, um, not a story about pity. It was a story about joy, um, and in the, in the face of hardship in real hardship. Um, but what was most amazing about Falgon was that she cultivated, Um, you know, joy everywhere. She went through song, through dance, through prayer. She made everyone stronger. Um, And that was that was a narrative I wanted to tell. And it came from her. But I definitely, you know, made certain filmmaking choices to build that narrative um, and create that story. So.
0: So when you talk about a movie, one documentary and you talk about another film, that's that's like a fictional story, those come with their own sets of challenges and obviously benefits. Which one did you kind of feel was harder to make or which one do you think posed the most difficulties? And then what did you learn about the different types of storytelling involved in documentary versus kind of i guess more structured fictional narrative filmmaking?
1: Yeah, I it's hard to say which was harder to make. I mean, they both had, you know, equal challenges that were just different, very different. Um and they were both, you know, personally difficult for different reasons. One was you know exploring a very even though I have this sort of distance from it in that it was not a life or a time period that I lived with inside job it was still based on my own family history and a lot of it was actually creating some of my you know recreating some of my parents and my grandparents and my community's childhoods um which made it very personal in that sense um so you know it's it's always difficult I think to to take a step back when you're dealing with something that is um very personal to you and to again not to make it um objective by any means but to paint a full picture and make sure that you know you're you're looking past your own blind spots um and you know that part of the way I sort of tried to address that with inside job was through um like I mentioned earlier getting research assistants in Kenya to talk to the other side of the perspective of the domestic labor relationship which was of domestic workers who were black africans who you know may not have spoken as freely to me as they would to um you know, native Kenyans who um, were doing the research on my behalf on that side of the of the relationship. Um, you know, of course, knowing that what what the research was going towards and then who the creator was, I think that was a big decision I had to make um, in order to fill that blind spot of mine. And that, I mean, and then Mama Vunyada was personally difficult as well for a different reason, which was the fact that I felt very close to Mama um, Like I said, she sort of took me under her wing, like she did other people. Um, you know, she was a mother figure to everyone in her community, the young, the old um, native or foreign. So she was, she was like a mother figure to me too. And, and she actually passed away in the middle of the post-production. So I was editing the film. I had just left and she started deteriorating. She was diagnosed with metastatic cancer. Um, and, you know, we thought she had longer than she did, but, but she passed away really suddenly. And I had to sort of take a break from the material from editing the film and that was a really difficult personal challenge that I had never encountered before with a film um or with a documentary and you know I one of my favorite things about making documentaries has always been showing because I make character-based docs um I always love the part where I can show the completed project to the person that is sort of at the center of the film because I you know I love sort of part of my goal with, with character-based documentaries is to highlight the extraordinary and ordinary people, um, and show themselves or show them that they are the hero, because a lot of times people, you know, don't see themselves or have the privilege of seeing themselves as the hero of the story in film and media. Um, and so I was really, you know, it, it was hard to not be able to have that moment with Falgon. Um, but I, I, you know, I actually ended up drawing a lot of strength from her and from what I learned from her, you know, which was how to be resilient through hardship and how to cultivate the joy and the strength that she sort of summoned every day. And, you know, I was, I was in grief and saddened for sure when she passed away, but I, I, you know, after I took a short break from the material, I returned to it with an even stronger drive to make the film um, and, you know, be able to preserve a little piece of her, her life and legacy, Um, so I'm, you know, it's, it's, I'm hoping it's a film that continues to inspire change. And, and it's something that I think, I think Felgo knew just how extraordinary she was. She knew how beautiful she was and she took pride in it. Um, she knew how much impact she had in the community and, um, yeah, that, that makes me very happy.
0: So that's actually an interesting story. Um, now kind of going a little bit more about you, um, you, you spoke kind of earlier about you know, that you started watching kind of around grade 12 or you started watching, um, you know, more, I guess you said better, you watch better movies and better yeah. films, right? Yeah. What are you watching right now? Just so people can kind of get to know you as a person.
1: Sure. Um, I, so I was actually just at the Chicago South Asian, uh, film festival. Um, that was like a week or two ago and inside job was, was premiering there. Um, and it's having its Canada premiere, in less than a week but um at that film festival I saw a lot of incredible stuff that's still on my mind um that I think will be coming out hopefully soon in in theaters so definitely look out for um there's this one movie called Three of Us by Avinash Arun and it was just such a beautiful sensitive and delicate portrait of a woman with amnesia um, who goes back to this small village in India that she left when she was young um to sort of Relive these memories of her childhood and and deal with you know a, a traumatic um, event that happened through sort of walking down memory lane, and it was just it was just so beautiful and the acting was was incredible. I loved that film. Um, it was one of those films that makes you sort of as a filmmaker remember why you want to be a filmmaker, if that makes sense. Um, and I also saw a really awesome documentary by um, my the guy who was actually my film professor at MIT um, in that first film class I took Vivek Bald. He made this film called In Search of Bengali Harlem, which is really incredible. It's sort of it it shines light on this entirely hidden history of South Asians in America pre-1965 and of a lot of, um, you know, Bengali sort of, um, you know, migrants who weren't documented in any archives who settled in Harlem and you know really integrated with the Puerto Rican and African American communities there. Um, it's just an incredible story that that is, you know, something that I resonate with a lot because it's so based in um exploring and interrogating a history that that you know people don't know much about or pay much attention to. Um, Another film I watched recently that I really loved, it was sort of an again like another indie film. It was called Our Father the Devil. Um the actual name is in French. It's a French film by this incredible filmmaker, Ellie fumbi Um, and it's just sort of about this this. African refugee who settles in a small town in France and then um, you know happens to find out that this new priest in town is the warlord who killed her family and it's this story about revenge and justice and forgiveness and trauma and it just deals with all of that in such a captivating way um, but yeah I mean this is such a huge range of films I'm I have a big sort of I think wide range of the kinds of genres I like to watch I like to sort of keep it diverse and keep it, um, mix it up. The only thing I don't really watch is horror, but that's something that I I, I want to get myself to do more. Cause I mean, I know that there are a lot of really great horror movies, but I'm just, I'm too much of a wimp.
0: <laughs> so obviously you had, you know, you, you had to go through a bunch of different progressions. Obviously you, like you said at the beginning, you wanted to become a lawyer and then you kind of switched to film. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who are in similar situations or, you know, maybe are on a career path or, you know, studying something that they don't really want to do. They do want to become filmmakers. What would what advice would you give to them?
1: My advice for anyone who has, you know, this the, the burning desire in them to make something is to just go and make it. I mean, don't let yourself be caught up in any kind of excuse you know it the you can make anything today with a phone I know people always say that and it's annoying but it is true um and you also don't need to wait for you know a huge amount of funding and you don't need to wait for the right story or the right people you just need to start I think that's the most important thing I mean I think the first you know the first few films I made and still that I still make are not you know by any means, masterpieces, but you learn from all the like the first drafts of things you make, and it's just about starting. It's kind of like one of those um, things you have to make into a habit or a routine. Um, and once you start, you know, if if you're meant to do it, then I think you won't stop.
0: So, what, what? So, can you give us any teases on what you're working on next, or any concepts you kind of want to explore?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm. I, documentary and fiction both hold a special place in my heart, and um, I'm open to. I want both to be in my life and to make both in the future. But at the moment, I have more sort of fiction projects on my mind and on my slate. Um, hoping to develop Inside Job into a feature film of some kind. I have, you know, so many other stories that from the interviews I did that I also am really interested in building out into full blown narratives. Um, so, you know, ideas of diaspora and migration and identity are really interesting to me. And there's so many ways I want to explore those things. Um, but I'm, in addition to some of the historical stuff, like the sort of South Asian diaspora in East Africa and diasporas in different parts of the world, I'm also really interested in, um, at the same time, exploring my own experience as a Western born daughter of immigrants. You know, never feeling brown enough, Muslim enough, whatever, in the spaces I was growing up in. Um, but coming to sort of claim my identity in my own way and carve out space for myself. And that's, you know, a common story for, I think, a lot of people in our generation who are people of color and children of immigrants. And that's something that I want to explore as well. So I'm also, you know, working on a feature script that I'm writing that's sort of more grounded in, um, you know, like a Canadian-born South Asian immigrant Um family type of experience so yeah but I think generally it's you know I'm I'm interested in stories of of people who are you know grappling with questions around identity but also grappling with different hardships and learning to be resilient um and to carve space for themselves and what they want to do in the world and I think um you know the the films I make are are I think aspirational in the sense that they I want them to sort of Project a kind of vision for, um, you know, I want them to reflect reality, but I also want them to reflect a future that, that I'd like to see. Um, yeah.
0: So I'm going to ask you to do something, which may be impossible. I don't know. Um, if you had, if you could kind of sum up the message or insight into like two words for each of your films that you kind of want the audience to take away. How would you do that? And I know this is probably an impossible thing to ask someone who has spent so much time kind of developing
1: these stories, but... <laughs> That's, yeah, definitely difficult, but you said, like, two words for each Two film? or
0: three words, like, not, you know, just, like, a quick, like, kind of overall message for each of your films.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, so, for *Mama of Mineta, um okay, this isn't two words, but I'll give you a sentence, <laughs> I think. Um the message i want people to take from away from it is that the stories of suffering are are incomplete without stories of resilience um right. they go hand in hand and i think for inside job um it's it's meant to be a reckoning and a confrontation but also um, an aspiration and an envisioning of of a more just future through that reckoning so That's as as that can be sorry that i mean
0: that was that was very good um <laughs> i didn't think you'd be able to do it because it's very obviously it's a very hard thing to do and yeah. i just wanted to see if you could summarize it for people listening yeah, no. uh, so thank you so much for coming by uh virtually obviously it was great to talk to you and hopefully i see everyone listening at on sunday at the canadian premiere um the link for tickets is in the description of this episode now before i let you go do you want to promote your social media for the audience? Uh, it'll also be in the description. But or do you want to promote anything else, kind of while you're here?
1: Well, I mean, thanks for having me. This has been awesome to talk to you. Um, yeah, I mean, follow me on Instagram. It's at Kiana Raji Films. Um, I post there about new projects, and um, you know, if you can't make it to the screening this Sunday in Toronto, there'll be more opportunities in the future, hopefully. So stay tuned there.
0: Perfect. And yeah, again, everything will be in the in the description of the episode. I want to thank you again for coming by to talk to us. I know you're very busy. Uh, Hopefully everyone listening comes on Sunday to see you and uh, see your films, which, again, are amazing, and I know I'll be there. Um, But, yeah, thank you again. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to my interview with filmmaker Kiana Rauji. Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps, leave a rating, a review, and share with your friends. We normally drop episodes on Wednesdays at 7 a.m., Eastern. We, uh, our last interview was, or our last episode was an interview with actress Alexia Fast. Uh, you can also follow me on social media at College Jamal 03 You can follow the podcast on social media at Comic Boys underscore, and check out C- the CB Media Network podcast page and YouTube channel for more great content. No, not only from me, but also from my amazing team. We have instant reactions to movies and even more amazing interviews, uh, Hollywood news reactions, breakdowns, and so much more. Huge thank you to my amazing technical producer, Iad, and he's and the only reason we can even do this show, and his social media is also in the podcast description as well. Thank you everyone and I'll see you next time. Bye.